Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast, where we navigate our political and cultural divides with a chaser of civility. We invite you to grab your favorite beverage and join us as we explore our differences and build bridges across our divisions. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein, who is just back from vacation where we had no cell phone, which was crazy. Uh, We are here to interview Elizabeth Weiss again. After our first interview with her, we got a lot of fun feedback that we wanted to talk more about. And Elizabeth, I know when we first talked, you didn't bring a drink into this conversation. You did. (laughs) What'd you bring? I've just brought... A straight beer, just a rolling walk. I'm I'm close behind you, but I'm a little fancier. I've got a blackberry cider with me. So I know our lawyers aren't drinking right now. As we're joined by Daniel Ortner and Ethan Blevins. And so with that said, David, give us a little intro on where we're at with our conversation with Elizabeth. Yeah, so obviously Elizabeth sparked a bit of back and forth. Um, from some of the usual suspects on um, on her views on what is within the acceptable discourse, what um, constitutes legitimate academic inquiry, and so forth. And I just we just thought it would be good to further explore some of these issues with you as they've come up. Um, and um, I guess the, the 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 one one of the charges that was sort of made by a critic was that your views are far outliers within uh, sort of the anthropological anthropology community um, and that you really uh, don't have standing. Now, let me just say the fact that you're, that you may be a gadfly and maybe you are, maybe you aren't is not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe we, I believe most systems need people who remind us that, um, that there should be no, Group think that we need uh, we need outliers. So, um, but I'm just curious as to whether you see your views as outliers, or maybe you could give us even a percentage. What percentage of people do you think are sort of with you, even if they're quietly with you? Oh, you know, it's so hard to say. I would say that I do hold one of the more extreme views on repatriation issues, um, not only on uh, about indigenous remains, but just the importance of preserving skeletal collections. I've said it many times that um, I hold these same views about European skeletal collections. Um, so I do think that I am on that the extreme view on that side. That being said, I'm not alone. <laughs> um, there are actually quite a few people who agree with me. I get emails from them. Um, And um, the thing is that many of them um, are scared to to mention it, to agree with me in public. I've had people, um, archaeologists, state archaeologists, for example, say, you know, I completely agree with you, but I don't want to lose my job, so I'm I'm not going to say anything. I've had full professors who've said that. Um, Most of them. They just don't want to come out and say it. And then there are people who um, disagree with me um, and, um, and um, still work with me. Uh, my la- one of my last papers, um, I published 
um, in um, uh, that included uh, research on skeletal remains was done with a co-author who was very for repatriation, but he respects that different people have different views, and therefore he wouldn't uh, shun a person who has a different view. So I would say that it's a, there is a spectrum, and that even though I do you know, side with the importance of preserving skeletal collections, uh, I'm not the only one. I might be one of the more vocal ones, but I'm not the only one. And I think that it is a, a false perception to suggest that everybody is for the repatriation of skeletal remains. Hmm. Hey, Elizabeth, I've got a question. So I, I read you know, some of your the critiques, and one of them does say, and I think you just countered this, but one of them does say that that we have not treated the bones of, say, white Americans in the same way that we've treated the bones of indigenous Americans. And that is part of the critique is that there hasn't been that same respect uh, across ethnic, racial, whatever differences. Would you agree with that? Or I would say that there's a large variety of ways that bones have been treated and that some skeletal collections of Western Europeans are curated. Um, there are uh, people study the remains of both European uh, Europeans uh, and indigenous peoples. Um, there are known uh, known individual collections like uh, autopsy collections. But there's also like uh, you know medieval cemeteries that have been excavated, who are curated in the UK. I don't think that this is, we've only looked at Native American remains, and those are the only ones that haven't been reburied. I think that there's a lot of variation. And I, I was just reading today about this um, Hallstatt painted skulls from Austria, and from, you know, I, I think 1700s or so. And this collection um, is one of the collections that was excavated, um, and um, is not reburied. Um, and the author who I was reading, um, I was reading it actually in preparation for my class tomorrow, um, he said, unfortunately, some of these similar skulls, painted skulls from Austria, have been reburied. So obviously, you know, he thinks that the fact that some of the skulls were reburied is unfortunate, whereas other skulls in the same culture um, we're not reburied. I think that it's it's a false dichotomy to say Native American remains have never are are always treated with keeping out of the ground, and non-Native American remains are always reburied. It's just a false dichotomy. Can I say one thing? One thought I had is we're talking about whether Elizabeth's views are outside of the mainstream or or, or not, but I think that's you know. From our, my perspective, the, the First Amendment does exactly what it protects are views that are not in the mainstream. Uh, if your views are in the mainstream, you don't need protection necessarily. You, you can be accepted by your peers. But if your views are unpopular or unusual or you know, different than others, that's when you need protections for your free speech. Um, the First Amendment's always protected those that have had unpopular views 
uh, different views, views that have led them to be ostracized or seen um, negatively. Um, that, that's the whole point, why we have this protection for freedom of thought and freedom of expression uh, for those ideas that are, are different, that are you know, challenging, or even ones we, we hate or disagree with strongly. That's what the First Amendment ultimately protects. For sure. I, uh, I just was curious as to what, how her colleagues regard her and what kind of um, intellectual environment she's existing in. Um, and and I've, frankly, I think there's a role to play for, for even a, a party of one who might have a different point of view, as long as it's held in good faith. Um, so are there, any, are there any exceptions in your own mind to repatriation? In other words, like, um, you know, you, you made the case last time that, you know, a 3,000-year-old skull can barely be traced at all to a specific tribe that exists today. But that's not the case with a 75-year-old skull. Um, and do you regard those things as different? Um, and do you regard the claim made by a Native American group as stronger than the 3,000-year-old skull? Well, I think that, um, I think I would again go on the extreme and say that, you know, um, if at all possible, that skeletal collections should be preserved. And that although, you know, you could draw a line and, uh, so, you know, if there are still literally family members who remember the individual, that might be a line that I would draw. But I think it's interesting that we ex we completely accept in our own culture that family is not necessarily the determinant of what happens to, um, and I'm talking about biological family, of what happens to a person's remains when they pass. So, for example, um, I'm married. If I die, my husband has say-so over my parents <laughs> um, over my funeral, right, or my how my remains are done. So I think that one of the things is that, um, you know, we have kind of norms that, um, you know, marital norms, family norms, where we would say, yes, that those decisions are going to be made on that basis. But I, I personally think that that stops very soon. Um, you know, uh, two generations maybe, right? So I would, that would be my own perception. Um, but I do think that that's worth arguing about, but I don't think that we can argue about it when people just basically say, oh, well, she, if she's against repatriation, then I don't want to talk to her or I don't want her on the platform. So I think that regardless of, where I would draw that line, and I probably would draw it further than anybody, you know, the closer um, temporally than than most people. But nevertheless, you know, if you are like, well, it doesn't matter if she has that line. I just don't want to hear from her, and I want to make sure that she shuts up. Then that kind of argument cannot be made. That kind of nuance can't be discussed. Agreed. 
Can I ask you a very sensitive question that's come up? Uh, we're about sensitive questions here. And I think you addressed it on Michael Shermer's podcast. Um, you mentioned you're married and um, you were married in the past, I believe, to somebody who was actually even more controversial than you are. Um, and some people believed crossed the line is to uh, acceptable discourse. Even people who have such high tolerances as I do might consider him uh, beyond the pale in some ways. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there and, and, and what your perspective on that, all that is? Um, so I was married to Phil Rushton prior to being uh, prior to being married to my, my current husband, Nick Pope. Um, Phil did uh, research on race differences. Um, I would say he, he was an evolutionary psychologist or a sociobiologist. Um, I personally, um, I don't talk about the uh, the intricacies or the details of his research because I'm not an evolutionary psychologist. I don't do like intelligence studies. I don't, you know, a lot of his stuff was around um, things that I don't do. I can say, um, you know, we were married for three years and together for five. I can say that um, he never displayed um, any acts of racism while we were together. So he didn't treat people of different races poorly. He got along with a variety of people. He never, you know, used racial slurs. He what his research was on race. But he was not a racist, and I stand by that. Got it. Well, I, I, you know, on that note, I was reading again some of the criticisms of that, and I'm wondering. I mean, I think it's probably a, a foregone conclusion, but I'm wondering if some of the backlash that you get, Elizabeth, is a result of people not knowing um, his work or being able to separate it from your work, and. On that note, I don't. Do you want to respond to that, or uh, I? I don't think most people knew I was married to Phil before this. I never hid it. It's just you know, we. It has been such a long time ago, and um, so I think that it's more like you know they dug that up kind of thing. <laughs> um, you know, the other thing is, you know, I'm currently I'm married to Nick Pope, and a lot of people have accused him of various things because he appears on shows like Ancient Aliens. So I don't, do I, I guess the thing is, even if I had never been married to anybody controversial, I think that they were, the arguments would still be the same and the, um, the vitriol would still be the same, you know, so I think it's kind of an irrelevant issue. Um, I don't think it's surprising that people with um, controversial views who are not afraid to say them um, basically are attracted to other people who are not afraid to say them. And that's one of the perspectives that I would say with, you know, when people are like, oh, well, you know, look who so-and-so is hanging out with. It's, you know, um, I just don't, I don't think that that's surprising. Yeah. And I want to get to to the lawyers that are working on your free speech case. Uh, one more question as I was just kind of going over some of the criticisms is this idea of working in collaboration. Are there some instances 
of working in collaboration with indigenous groups that have been successful? Is there a model that we can follow or is that just kind of a a red herring? I think that collaborative work with uh, indigenous populations can be successful. Um, I think that when people say, oh, I'm anti-collaboration, this is not true. I'm anti-censorship. And if that collaboration, whether it is with indigenous peoples or non-indigenous peoples, requires me to censor, for example, my results or what questions I am interested in, then I'm not interested in that type of collaboration. So one of the problems is that a lot of times collaborating requires you to get to get your hypotheses approved and is this an okay question to ask and there have been cases where anthropologists have worked with um, Native American tribes where they basically say you know what if the results don't turn out the way we want them to then you don't you will not publish that well this is a form of censorship and I'm not saying this is always the case but when this is the case, when you have to agree on the on not publishing results that are unfavorable, or if you have to censor what you're going to ask, then I would not collaborate with that. Do you have any uh, like concrete examples of like where you've seen that censorship play out in something cons- that originally started out as collaborative? Yeah. Um, I talk about it in um, one of um, one of my recent articles on the politics of bones, um, where the uh, researchers started with a collaborative project on um, the residential school graves. Um, they were planning on excavation, um, and the Native American tribes that they were working with have decided that they do not want the excavations to occur. We do not even know if these are actual graves. And so they have put it on hold that there will be no excavations. Another example um, is that um, um, just recently research has come out on um, genetics of the one of the tribes that I've um, that is from the Bay Area, the Muwekma Ohlone. And although the research on these gen- the genetic <coughs> results have come out, um, in order for the collaborative effort to work, um, the Mowekma Ohlone tribe have said that they will um, hold control over the DNA um, and only release the DNA data to um, after reviewing the requests. All the other DNA in the article such as those from Africa, Europe, and other uh, South American Native Americans, um, is freely available. It's publicly accessible. So this is another example. There is a whole bunch of them. So, yeah. So Daniel and Ethan are working on your free speech case. Do you guys want to talk a little bit more about what that entails? Daniel, you can go ahead and start if you'd like. Sure. So San Jose State University, uh, in light of Elizabeth's writings and her tweets, uh, including a tweet that holding an image uh, of her with a, a skull from the collection, um, you probably talked about this 
last time with her, that they essentially have barred her from access to the collection. Uh, they've really, I think, essentially taken away her, her, her title, her job as a collections coordinator for the exploration coordinator for the a collection. Um, she can access, I think, 5% of the remains in a separate classroom that's not well-suited for accessing them now. Um, and we think this was clearly done in retaliation for her speech. Um, you know, the university claims that oh, it was her mishandling these remains somehow, and I think that's just not founded. Um, we, I think, have, um, in the case, a lot of evidence from her, her peers, uh, from other um, anthropologists, uh, sh- and also examples of the university itself having similar pictures and images on its website. Um, and so there really is this, this double standard at work here, where they're using um, something that, you know, a year ago, two years ago, would not have been controversial at all. The university on its own site had these pictures um, still on the wall of the uh, anthropology department. Elizabeth, I think you, you've said they still yes. have posters with your image, with a similar picture uh, with the remains on the wall there. And they take this uh, to and then say, well, she mishandled the remains and therefore we're going to uh, have to listen to the tribe and bar her from access. And this is, I think, really pretextual. Uh, and ultimately a violation of the First Amendment. That's our, our theory in, in the lawsuit, is that this is retaliation against her for her speech. Um, there's also, I think, the, the threats um, outstanding against Elizabeth uh, from her dean, uh, where he basically said, you know, if she keeps teaching her views on repatriation to students, that he might have to take action against her because he said, he said those views were unethical, that they were improper to be taught to students, uh, that they would be you know, they, they're professionally incompetent. So all these things that are, could be a basis for uh, taking action against um, Elizabeth. So we think that there's uh, evidence of threats of future action against her. And of course, everything that they've done with the access to the remains, which I think is, is really egregious and a, a violation of the First Amendment. Daniel, I want to uh, ask you a little bit more about it. Obviously, I think this is Horrible. So let's start there. I mean, it's not, it's not, that's not the question. It is, it is, it is certainly a, um, it is certainly stifling her right to be able to express herself. But, but that doesn't automatically, of course, make it a First Amendment violation. And I'm trying to understand why it is a First Amendment violation as somebody who's not a First Amendment attorney. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a professor, has academic freedom, but academic freedom itself is not ensconced in the First Amendment. I mean, an academic, um, uh, that's why we have tenure th- to protect um, an academic's right to express themselves. Um, but what would make this, uh, you know, if I, if I speak out at my workplace, uh, now I'm, I, I'm the, I'm the boss, so I, can, I guess I get to, but now even there, I don't have an un, unmitigated right to, uh, to free speech. If I speak out in the workplace and I say something that sort of violates the policy of the organization, they can fire me. Um, and, um, and so why, why does she get, why is this a First Amendment case? Sure. Um, so public employees, especially professors, um, who work for a state, you know, state institution, um, are protected by the First Amendment for their speech. And I would say, you know, academic freedom, it, it, the First Amendment encompasses academic freedom. It's not coextensive. You know, academic freedom in the a broader sense extends beyond what the First Amendment guarantees. I mean, tenure protections are, are broader than, they, than the First Amendment, for instance. But academic freedom is a component of the First Amendment. Um, the Supreme Court has, I think, said very clearly um, when they 
were dealing with cases involving loyalty oaths, uh, for instance, in the 1950s and 60s, that um, academic freedom is a core component of the First Amendment, um, that it is uh, an essential protection for freedom of thought, uh, for diversity of thought, and for um, you know, and, and so I, I do think that there is First Amendment protection. Um, when a public employee, and especially a professor, um, speaks out, uh, the, a, a, an employer can't take action against them just because they don't like their views. Now, there's a, a balancing test in the law. Um, it's, it's called the Pickering test for you know, the, the, the legal case it's based on, which balances the First Amendment rights of the professor against the interests of the university. So it's not, um, it's a little, the protections are weaker than in other contexts outside of uh, employment, uh, but there still is protection uh, for uh, First Amendment rights of, of public employees, um, including uh, professors. Uh, thank you. Uh, Ethan, if you had wanted to add anything to that. Um, just briefly to say, I mean, part of the balancing test there is whether or not the speech disrupts the mission of the university or the public employer. And I think it's worth noting here that uh, Professor Weiss's speech furthers that mission, right? Because the interest and the mission of the university is the pursuit of truth. It's the uh, robust exchange of ideas. And to shut down dissent is, in fact, contrary to that mission. So I think it's difficult to say the university has any real, genuine interest that we should recognize that would prevail over her interests in academic freedom. Hmm. Where, where is the case now? So we are currently litigating at a very preliminary stage. We've asked for what's called a preliminary injunction, where we're just asking the court to put a hold on the policy that prevents Professor Weiss from accessing the remains uh, during the pendency of the litigation while it moves forward. Um, the government has also filed a motion to dismiss, basically just saying we don't have a valid claim at all. Um, they are claiming, for instance, that the tribes are necessary parties that need to be joined to the litigation. Um, and so we are, have a hearing at the end of the month. Uh, it's hard to say when the judge would issue a ruling based on that hearing, but that will kind of set the tone for the remainder of the case from there. Right now, it really is a critical time for this case because the remains in question are likely going to be repatriated sometime in the next couple of months. Um, and so we're hoping to get Elizabeth access, uh, at least for the time until they're repatriated, so she can do some of the really, I think, really cutting edge important research that she plans to do um, that, you know, if she doesn't get to do it, it'll be lost, that, that information will be lost forever, really. She'll never get to do that research uh, on this collection. So we're hoping that we can, you know, we're not fighting and saying these can't be repatriated. The law is what it is. It, it requires repatriation. We're not saying you know, not to repatriate, but there's no reason whatsoever that she can't have access during the what during the time that they're preparing to repatriate. We think the law, the um, Cal, uh, the Cal Nagpra, uh, California Native American Repatriate Graves Repatriation Act, uh, actually um, allows research um, while repatriation is happening. It, you know, it, it keeps it has in mind that research will continue until close to when repatriation is going to happen. And so there's really no reason for the university to be barring her from access, um, even if the tribes want her to not have access. That that's not a ju they're not justified in barring her from accessing these remains uh, during this time. If, if, if the university grants her access again, 
can't they still prevent her from doing research around those particular remains? I mean, they could sort of get over the technical prohibition against barring her, but but still not give her access to, or or no. Well, I mean, the injunction we're seeking from the court would be to allow her to have access to these remains and to do research, um, at least uh, you know, for a reasonable period of time until repatriation is going to happen. Yeah. Another germane aspect of this situation was um, the the insistence that um, menstruating women cannot be around remains. Now, I know this is a free speech case, so that would not be specifically germane right is, is did you did you consider filing a discrimination case uh, i i think I, I know elizabeth has talked about maybe filing a a, a title uh, like a title 9 complaint or title 7 complaint of some kind with the EO, with the eoc uh and that's a possibility i don't think it could be, it wouldn't be part of this lawsuit necessarily and the university has said that they've repealed repealed that policy i think as soon as we filed a, a brief that uh <laughs> highlighted it and said look this is ridiculously <laughs> sexist um outrageous uh, they immediately said, "No, we're, we're not enforcing this. This is not not in place anymore." So I think they they you know very quickly realized that <laughs> this is not not something that a, a public university should be enforcing in in twenty twenty two in the United States of America. And let me just um, let me just inter interject here with a little bit about you know what I would hope to do if I do get access to the remains before they are repatriated. I do have two um, research plans that I basically am ready ready to collect the data on. Um, one of them is a research on skeletal remains that looks at whether um, a common indicator for anemia um, is actually an indicator for anemia or rather for other health issues or even for just regular growth. There's a lot of, there's still a lot of research um, questions just trying to figure out what the best way to understand past people's health is. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to do, um, you know, before COVID hit was to, to try to tease out one of these uh, issues that surrounds looking at indicators of iron deficiency anemia. Um, so that's one of the aspects. And the other one is a, a research on um, the um, inverse relationship between osteoporosis and osteoarthritis that um, suggests that, the, that those individuals who are more likely to get osteoarthritis are less likely to become osteoporotic. And that this is kind of an evolutionary or biological um, explanation of why um, these diseases are so prevalent. Um, it also encompasses one of um, my favorite aspects of uh, kind of a, one of my favorite evolutionary theories um, about the importance of grandparents and that, you know, sometimes we think about um, traits being selected for or against just during your reproductive years and then once you're older, the, the natural selection aspect is gone. But we also know that um, grandmothers in particular help children um, thrive and survive. And therefore, there might be pressures, biological pressures that protect them. 
they get they get arthritis, which is not fatal, um, but they're less likely to get osteoporosis, which can be fatal. And so I was hoping to explore that more in depth. I did one research study on that uh, a few years ago. So I have, you know, the in one way these two from from my perspective very distinctly different research projects, but um, both of them uh, have wide-reaching implications, um, not only for the specific reconstruction of this co uh, collections path, but also biological, medical, evolutionary um, implications that I think are really interesting and, and should be, you know, explored. So that would be my hope to get at least um, those studies done. Um, fingers crossed. Daniel, you, you, you brought up something that I hadn't heard of before. You talked about loyalty oaths. Did I hear you correctly? Um, and, and now we're talking about purity tests. Are those kind of one in the same thing? Well, I mean, the, there's been a really disturbing trend uh, in universities, and Elizabeth's case is, is related to this broader trend. It's not the same exact thing, but there's been a, a real trend towards requiring ideological purity uh, from faculty members and, and prospective faculty members. I've done a lot of research on the use of uh, diversity statements, for instance, in, in, in the hiring policies. Uh, and in tenure policies at universities, and especially in California, where if you say the wrong the wrong thing on the topic of diversity and equity, if, you know, if you say, for instance, um, discrimination, uh, the way to get rid of discrimination, to stop discriminating is to st uh, on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, quoting Justice, Chief Justice Roberts. If you would say that in an essay, you would not get hired at most of the California universities uh, because that view is not acceptable. Um, and so th there's, I think, a real in increase in purity, ideological purity, especially on topics that relate to race and um, equity issues. And so I think Elizabeth's speech isn't exactly on that topic, but it ties into the debate a little bit because you have uh, in, in, tribes that are these marginalized groups and people say, well, look, you can't say anything that goes against their wishes, their desires. And if you do, then you are a racist, you're um, anti-Indigenous. Um, and so I think there's some ways, uh, some some overlap there. Um, and it, it's related to this, I think, constriction of free speech on campus that has been very alarming, I think, in the past couple of years. And I think that um, in some ways, in addition to, you know, the issues surrounding the um, my access to the collections and my views on repatriation. Um, my chair and dean also um, mention um, negatively my other my other overall views, such as when I um, one of the professors in my department um, sent out an email to all the alumni and graduate students about citing using a database called Cite Black Authors. And this, um, when this went out, and this was, came out right, this incident came out right around the same time that the controversy over my book started bubbling up. And, um, I had sent, I had sent a reply that basically said, um, that basically said, um, although I think this is well intentioned, I recommend or I suggest that you know, students cite the best research available regardless of the author's race. 
and this was pointed out as, you know, another example of how, um, you know, I was on the wrong side or how that, that I needed to be watched or controlled. Um, and I think that in some ways the repatriation issue is a, a sliver of the issue about, um, about social identity or political social identity. And so my perspective, my overall perspective, and which is one of the reasons why I think I'm get, uh, being targeted, is that my perspective is that you look at the research and whoever is telling the most accurate story is the one that you should consider. Not, it doesn't matter who is telling the story as long as it's the most accurate one and a person's race, um, tribe, gender, sex, whatever, is irrelevant to whether the, that is accurate or not. Right. In some ways, what we're dealing here with is a sort of, um, as, as West Gang calls it, a, a successor ideology, an ideology that seeks to replace liberalism with an alternative, I hate to use the E word, but epistemology, um, a, um, a, a way of knowing that's not based on good argumentation or claims to truth, but rather on who has the requisite lived experience to define the world for the rest of us. And, um, and that's become so commonplace, it seems to me, that, you know, even in the academic world where you would think people would know better when fight back because they want to investigate truth claims, um, and, and do good science, they've bought into this as well. And, uh, in fact, it, it actually originated in, 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 um, the academy. So, uh, you know, I, I it always, it always sort of mystifies me why more scholars aren't willing to stand up and say, this is crazy. That's not how we do science. That's not how we do social science. Yeah. I can just say, if um, yep. you don't mind, an interesting element behind that site, Black Authors Incident, uh, and I think just this whole um, incident in general, is the university's concern for coddling students. Uh, I, if I remember right, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Professor Weiss, one of the things that was said to you with regard to the site Black Authors thing was, um, how would a student feel if they saw your response to this? Um, it's this sense that students have to be sheltered from um, dissenting viewpoints, uh, which I think is so fundamentally contrary to the mission of the university. Um, we should have the intellectual humility to recognize that, you know, the Overton window is always moving, right? Somebody's on the edge of the window, um, maybe in the middle in 10 years or not. We don't know. Um, and there is no value in protecting students solely because they might be made to feel uncomfortable. In fact, uh, that should be the mission of any university. I think one of the problems here is that universities have adopted this sort of customer is always right mentality with respect to their oh. students. We need to protect them. We need to make sure that they're comfortable um, when, in fact, that really isn't in the best interest of the students or the university's mission. Right. Yeah, I think that that's really important what Ethan said that you know, universities should make 
students feel somewhat uncomfortable, challenged at least. They should be exposed to different views. And I think Elizabeth's described that, you know, in her classroom, she introduces her view, but also the other side of the issue and lets her students discuss and talk about it and share their views. And I'm guessing a lot of the students disagree with uh, your position, Elizabeth, but that's part of the back and forth of an academic environment that should be allowed to prevail. Yes. And actually, I would say, um, you know, whenever I teach these issues in class, um, one of the, and this, this is how I've taught it in class since the beginning, um, is that I always present both perspectives or multiple perspectives. I let students make up their own mind. I actually never grade students on their opinion on these issues. Um, I, there's, there's so much material I can use for grading. I don't need to make sure that they're agreeing with me. Um, and, and I have no qualms about students disagreeing with me on these issues. I, you know, of course, do I want to convince certain students? You know, I hope that certain students come to my perspective, of course. But I also, I don't like setting up straw dogs. So like when I do um, assign um, perspectives that disagree with me on the repatriation issue, I try to find actually the best written and the um, best sourced material because I want them to think hard about it. And I think that this is what the university is about. Um, whether they walk out of the room um, and say, oh, you know, I completely disagree with her or wow, I completely agree with her is irrelevant. The thing is that what's relevant is that they've thought about it. What has been, on speaking of students, with all this hubbub in the university, what has been the response from students? Have you had a decrease in class size, an increase in class size, uh, students pushing back more? What, 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 what does it look like on the ground for you? You know, um, most, for most of my classes, it has no impact, right? So for like intro to human evolution, this is a GE class, no effect. Um, for some of my classes, um, we talk about the topic, but I really haven't seen any change in class size. Um, I've um, talked about um, ethics in my um, graduate level class. Um, it was it was a very testy exchange, um, but you know, in the end, um, we all um, you know agreed that it was a good um, a good discussion. Um, I have, um, the, um, I have some students who say, you know, um, they completely agree with me. So, um, I, you know, it's really a mixed bag, but the funny thing is, um, you know, I think that, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think that the reason why they don't want, the other reason why they don't want, um, different views introduced to the to the students is because they worried sometimes that students might come to what they see as the wrong conclusions <laughs> you know i think that it, it's coddling mentally as well um i have lost um one graduate student over this um and um which i think is a shame because i think that um had she stuck around um for you know, kept me on her uh, thesis board. Um, I'm, 
and I don't say this to be to um, be bragging, but I'm um, I'm actually a very good thesis advisor, in part because I really like doing the work, but also the other thing is um, that um, you know I I don't mind um, I don't mind working a lot. <laughs> um, student, one of the things that people students recognize of, from me is that um, I get the stuff the materials back to them very quickly. I answer emails very quickly, things like that. Um, and I've had success um, with thesis, um, with student thesis, where one of my students won the um, university level um, best thesis award and the other one the college level. So um, I would say that my success rate is, is very good and that this is... In a way, the student decision not to um, to stay with me as their thesis advisor is a shame for the student. Sadly, I'm not in your field, but I did not have that same experience in writing my dissertation. I wish that you were <laughs> in my poli-sci field. That would have been <laughs> better for me. Um, Elizabeth, I've got um, another question moving away from the legal side, you know, when, when reviewing some of the criticism of your work, there was this question around race. And I'm looking at one of the things now was that you say in a P in your book that you have to define race as um, you, you recognize that it's problematic for some, but we believe it's use refer to biological relationships and continue and continue Continue it. I can't even speak today. Among the prehistoric and historic peoples of North America is appropriate. This is what came out of your book. And so that was one of the quotes that was used to say that indeed this book is violent and racist. What do you say to that? I think that there's a big debate to be had about uh, the concept of race. I think that um, actually the way we use the term race in the book is still very much used. Um, by forensic anthropologists, for example, um, I think that um, you know a lot of times the term race, um, it, you know, the anthropologists don't want to use that term anymore, um, and so they just basically replace it with like ethnic groups or geographic populations. But they're really talking still about the same thing. One of the re the other reasons why we decided to use the term race is also because um, a portion of the book deals with the um, deals with the legal aspects of NAGPRA and other um, laws regarding Native Americans and does use the term race as well in the laws. Um, I think that, um, so, um, I would say that there's still quite a bit of debate uh, even around the, the, not only the use of the term, but the concept. Yeah, that, that, that continues into all aspects of our national dialogue too. David, any final thoughts on your end? No. No, I, I appreciate this. Um, I appreciate that you're getting um, you're, you're getting support from a legal team that can 
um, help uphold our first, your rights, but also the salience of our First Amendment, and um, and that um, we can create. I hope through legal challenges like this, um, legal risks for universities that aren't uh, as respectful as they should be toward their uh, toward their scholars and their right to freedom of expression and academic freedom. So um, I'm we're I'm rooting for you. Thank you. Um, let me let me um, say another one more thing. Um, I, I want to give a shout out to Glenn Custard, who is a retired anthropologist from um, Cal State East Bay. And why I do so and, um, is because he's actually, you know, he reached out to me um, quite early on when I was having my, um, when I had the controversy around, surrounding my book arose and so forth. And Glenn, um, he's a linguist. And he actually gave um, the um, test. He testified or gave the amicus brief um, for two of the paleo in, big paleo Indian studies um, cases, Kenwick Man and Spirit Cave. Um, but why I also want to give a shout out to him is because when these things were happening to me, and I was talking to him and others, um, Glenn was the one who told me to contact. Pacific Legal Foundation, because um, he had um, worked with some people there regarding um, affirmative action cases in the universities and schools. That might be a topic for even another discussion with you guys. Sounds like, <laughs> sounds like a plan, Jen. <laughs> Happy to come talk about that anytime. <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe you, uh, maybe Daniel, Ethan, you can, we can bring you on every once in a while to sort of offer legal opinion <laughs> about some of the challenging situations. You know, I mean, so much of free speech is not just about what's in the law, it's about culture. It's about having a culture that upholds the yeah. freedom of expression that goes far beyond whatever the First Amendment protects. And a lot of the work we do, because government tends not to stifle freedom of speech as it might have done in the past, I mean, obviously there's plenty of cases of it, but it's but we're, we're, we're asking ourselves, what kind of culture do we want to live in? And do we want a culture that prevents people from being able to share ideas and have conversations? So we tend to fight these issues on a cultural level, but sometimes that may mean that we're not as aware as we should be about what are the actual First Amendment um, implications of some of the things that we think might be just cultural issues? So we could we could use your we could use your uh, opining on that every <laughs> once in a while. Would love to. Sure. All right. Fantastic. We know how to reach you now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. absolutely. Anytime. Um, sounds good. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes to see what each of us is reading. Different news with different views. You can find us at holdmydrinkpodcast.com, all major podcast platforms, and on YouTube. Or subscribe on Substack at truthinbetween.substack.com so you never miss an issue. If you want to join our Discord community, drop us a line. And until next week, May your conversations be constructive and your divisions diminished. Cheers.